0: Om namo Bhagavate sriyarana chala uh, Namaskaram. <clears throat> um, today I'm going to start by answer, uh, answering a question that was asked on um, the video of our last meeting. Someone wrote a comment um, uh, saying, uh, uh, Namaskaram, Michael. I have a question about the attitude bhavana one should hold while conducting self-investigation. There are two different ideas I can read in Bhagavan's teachings. The first being investigating the self as I, or who am I, or what am I, or I am I. The second is God is I, Bhagavan is shiny as I, or I am Brahman. They both lead to attention on the self. But the feeling is subtly different. The first one is more analytical and driven by a curiosity, the second one devotional and is driven by longing to be one with Bhagavan. I understand that these ultimately that these are ultimately the same path, but to me these carry subtly different perfumes. Can you comment on this, please? Um when we are Actually, practicing self investigation, our attention should be wholly on ourselves, or to the extent possible, our attention should be wholly on ourselves. That is our aim. So, though different attitudes, such as the ones described here in this question, may help to lead to self attentiveness. The actual self investigation is when we are attending to ourself alone. So, if we are um, holding any bhavana, any attitude, we are still holding on to something other than ourselves. So, that is not uh, self investigation, or rather, to the extent to which we are holding on to any attitude, to that extent, our attention is not wholly on ourself. So, uh, the aim in self investigation is to fix our mind or attention wholly on ourselves. That is what we are trying to do. Of course, we, we, we don't uh, um, succeed in completely um, in, in fixing our attention entirely on ourselves, but that is what we are aiming for. That is what we are moving towards. So bhāvanas may be useful for bringing us to this practice. But once we actually come to the practice, we have to leave the bhāvana behind. So basically, what this question is about is about. Uh, or, oh, bhavana, by the way, means attitude or sentiment. But what this question is actually about is um, is about the motivation. What motivates us to attend to ourselves? We can be motivated by curiosity, by intense longing to know and to be what we actually are. We can be um, or. It can be, um, but it's very hard to draw a, a dividing line between these because they're they're very much um, they're very very closely connected. But we can say we can have a more devotional attitude. But what shines in our heart, as I is Bhagavan. Um, but ultimately, these are the, these are just different. Ways of motivating us to turn our attention back towards ourselves, And whatever motivates us to turn our attention towards our, ourself is good. So it doesn't have to be either or. It, um, that is, we have love for Bhagavan. And since we understand from Bhagavan that he is that which is always shining in our heart as I, our love for Bhagavan should prompt us to attend to I. We also understand from Bhagavan's teachings the importance of knowing and being what we actually are. So that should, and we can know and be what we actually are only by attending to ourselves. So that should also motivate us. So if we consider Bhagavan's teachings carefully... In their entirety, all of Bhagavan's teachings are pointing us in one way or other back towards this central point, this practice of self-attentiveness or self-investigation. This is what it's all about. So um, for most of us... um, what motivates us to attend to ourselves is a combination of these. We 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 do want to know what we actually are. But our wanting to know what we actually are is strengthened still further by understanding that what we actually are is Bhagavan. If we want to know Bhagavan as he actually is, we need to know ourselves as we actually are. So Bhagavan is that which is shining in our heart as I. So if we want to meditate on Bhagavan, if we want to lovingly hold on to, cling to Bhagavan in our heart, we need to cling to Him in His true Swarupa, His His own real form, which is I. So, um, th- th- as I say, these are not mutually exclusive. That is the devotional aspect and the the the. Curiosity, curiosity is not quite the right word, but the eagerness to know what we actually are. Both of these they, they go very much hand in hand. It's very hard to, to draw a line between them to separate one from the other. So we need we need to be motivated both by love for Bhagavan and by love to know what we actually are. Um, but when it actually comes to self investigation, we need to leave all these behind. Bhagavan has indicated this very clearly in, um, in uh, verses eight and nine of Upadesha India. Um, prior to verse eight of Upadesha India, he was talking about various devotional practices, puja, japa, and dhyana. Um, He had one verse devoted to each of these. Um, These are all actions that we can do, as he says. Puja is an action by body. Japa is an action by speech. And Dhyana is an action by mind. But these are all actions that we do to express our love for God. So these are all good. And in this order, each one is better than the previous one. That is better than... Puja is japa. Better than japa is dhyana. Because um, if we are doing puja, which is a, a bodily worship, our mind can easily be distracted. We can be doing the puja mechanically, but our mind can be wandering on other things. So better than that is japa. Um, and, and the speech is subtler than the, the body. So it's, uh, we're going from a grosser practice, grosser actions to more subtle actions, and more subtle than actions of speech are actions of mind. So they are most uh, effective of all. What he, when he, when Bhagavan talks about these being uh, each one being superior to a previous one, what he means is it is more efficacious in purifying the mind, which is the aim of all these. Um, That is, the actions we do for the love of God without expecting any reward from God are what are called nishkarmiya karma. So nishkarmiya karma, contrary to how it's usually understood, Bhagavan made it clear nishkarmiya karma is the preliminary stages of the path of bhakti, when we're expressing our love for God through actions. But having talked about each one of these, um, in verse Eight, he says, rather than Anya Baba, Ananya Baba, in which he is I, is certainly the best among all. Anya means what is other. Ananya means what is not other. So, in this context, Anya Baba implies meditating on God as something other than ourselves. That is, so long as we take God to be something. Other than ourselves, and meditate on Him. That is is Baba. So, what? Whereas, if we recognize that uh, He is I, if we un, if we uh, clearly understand that He is what is shining in our heart as I, we then meditate on Him as nothing other than I. In other words, we meditate on I alone. So, what he refers to here as Ananya Baba is actually self-investigation. We're not attending to anything other than ourselves, with, um, with the understanding But God is that which is shining in our heart as I. So uh, as I say, he says, rather than anya rather meditating on God as something other than ourselves, ananya Baba meditating on him as nothing other than ourselves, with the understanding that he is I, that is certainly best among all. When he says it's best among all, that means it's best among all the uh, various um, uh, practices of bhakti, or it's best among all the varieties of meditation, it's best among all the different kinds of, um, of spiritual practice, in the sense that it is the most effective of all means to purify the mind. And not only is it a means to purify the mind, It's also the only means to eradicate ego, which is the root of all impurities. We cannot purify the mind fully without eradicating ego, because ego is the root impurity. And um, we cannot eradicate ego by any means other than self-investigation, which is what he describes here as Ananya Baba. Then in the next verse, verse 9, he goes on to say, by the... Uh, uh, Baba Balatinal, that means by the strength of Baba, by the strength of meditation. In this context, the meditation he's referring to is the meditation he talked about in the previous verse, namely Ananya Baba. So, by the strength of meditation here means by the strength of self attentiveness, by the intensity, firmness, and stability of our self attentiveness being in Sat satbhava. satbhava means the state of being, our, our own real state of being. So uh, by the strength of meditation, being in satbhava, which transcends bhavana, uh, alone is parabhakti tattva, alone is the, the, the nature or the, uh, uh, the reality of a true state of supreme devotion. So according to Bhagavan, all these this puja, japa and dhyana, these actions that we do by uh, body, speech and mind just for the love of God and not for anything that we can get from God, these are good means of effect of purifying the mind. But these are just the preliminary stages of the path of bhakti. The, the ultimate bhakti is just to be in satbhava be in our own real state of being, and we can be in our own real state of being only by the strength of of uh, self attentiveness. So, by the strength of self attentiveness, we remain in our state of just being, and that state of just being is bhavana tita transcends all bhavana, all bhavanas. Bhavana means um, thinking, imagination. Uh, uh, Conceiving any any mental activity is a bhavana. So, in, when we attending to anything other than ourself is a mental activity, but attending to ourself is not a mental activity. It's a cessation of mental activity. So, by attending to ourself, we as ego subside back into our state of being. And by just being in that state of being, we are thereby transcending bhavana, transcending all mental conceptions, all imagination, all mental activity. And that alone is Parabhakti tattva. So that is what we have to move towards. So When we're actually practicing self-attentiveness, we need to leave all bhavanas behind, all attitudes, all sentiments we have to leave behind. the different Bhāvanas can be useful for bringing us to the point where we begin to attend to ourselves. But once we're actually attending to ourselves, we have to go beyond the Bhāvanas. We have to go bhavana-tita and just remain in the state of just be uh, What he describes in this verse as sat-bhava, a state of being, is our natural state of just being as we actually are, without rising as ego. So this is what we are aiming for. And then in the next verse, verse 10, he, he's, he says much the same thing. He says, Being subsiding in the place from which we rose. That is, by attending to ourself, we as ego thereby subside back into the place from which we rose. In other words, our source, which is our own being. And by being there, by being in our being, or just being as we actually are, that is karma and bhakti. That is yoga and jnana. That is the pinnacle of all these different practice, all these different spiritual paths. Is to come to this point where we attend to ourselves so keenly that we thereby subside and remain in in satbaba, the state of being which transcends all bhavana. So we shouldn't be too concerned about bhavana. We are trying to go beyond bhavana by attending just to ourselves. But that doesn't mean bhavanas have no role to play. Bhavana's, different bhavanas, as described in this question, can be useful for motivating us to attend to ourselves. For example, if we remember that Bhagavan is that which is always shining in our heart as I... That will naturally motivate us to attend to I, because we we naturally, having come to Bhagavan and having um, having been attracted to him, we naturally love him. And since he himself revealed that he is that which is shining in our heart as I, attending to him as attending to I is the is the that is the true meditation upon Bhagavan. That is because I is his Swarupa. His he, he's, Swarupa means his own, his his true form, his own real nature. What he actually is is that which is shining in our heart as I. So the devotion naturally draws us to this, but we need to leave behind even the idea that Bhagavan is shining in our heart as I. We need to, with so much love, we need just to cling to I. We need to leave aside all thoughts and just hold on to. Our own being, because only by holding on to our own being will we subside and thereby be as we actually are. So we we remain in the state or we or we remain or exist or are in the state of just being to the extent to which we attend to ourselves. So we should always bear in mind that the soul. The sole aim of Bhagavan's teachings is to turn our attention back to ourself, because by turning our attention back to ourself, we thereby bring about the subsidence of ego. When ego subsides, it will dissolve back into its source, and what will remain is whatever exists, which is the swarupa of Bhagavan and our own swarupa, namely the pure awareness I am, the pure it. Your existence, awareness, I am. So this is what we should be aiming for. So, as I say, this question is more about, or it um, it may not have been quite understood in this way, but we we should take this question to be about the motivation for attending to I, not the attitude, not not the actual. an attitude that we should hold on to when attending to I. When we're attending to I, we should attend to I. We shouldn't be holding on to anything other than I. So we don't have to hold on to any bhavana when attending to I. We should be just attending to I. But having a bhavana, an appropriate bhavana, may motivate us to attend to I. And then the the questioner goes on to say, these both lead to attention to the self, but the feeling is subtly different. So long as we are aware of any differences, we are still not attending to ourself because differences are things other than ourself. Our aim is to go beyond differences, just to hold on to ourself. So we, we... going beyond all feelings, going beyond all bhavenas, going beyond all differences. We are trying to attend to that which is ever unchanging, that which is eternal and unchanging. And the only thing that is eternal and unchanging is our own being, I am. So that is what we have to attend to. So we shouldn't attach too much importance to bhāvanas. Bhāvanas may be useful means for drawing us to this um to self-attentiveness but once th- they have then served their purpose it's like when you if um, to use an age-old analogy you you need a, a a boat to cross the river but having crossed the river you don't then carry the boat with you you don't you leave the boat behind and you go on with your journey so Different bhavanas may be useful for turning our attention away from other things back towards ourselves. Once our attention is turned back towards ourselves, we cross the river, then we hold on to ourselves. We don't uh, don't, uh, try to hold on to any bhavana. If we're holding on to any bhavana, our attention is again deflected away from ourselves. So I hope this is a useful answer to this question. Does anyone have any um, any questions that they want to ask about this or about any related matter?
1: Uh, there are quite a few questions, Michael. Okay, right. uh, the first one is quite long, so um, it really is quite long. It's been given in five parts, though I believe it's the same question. So right. I'll just run through it uh, right. slowly. Um, yeah, um, and uh, the questioner wants to extend his sincere apologies. Uh, because it is such a long question, but he's convinced that it will benefit everyone engaged in the practice of self-attention. Um, so, yeah, so it's, so the question is, in yoga, there are, many, there are so many practices. If practiced regularly and with all sincerity, these yield results, such as keeping the mind calm, keeping the body healthy, being able to manage situations better, etc. Though I I understand that all of these are second- and third-person objects that we need to reject from the point of view of self-attention, as that is not the goal we are aiming at with this practice, but only to annihilate ourselves, the ego. I do think that doing this practice of self-attention is far more effective in bestowing the results attained uh, by doing yogic practices. I recall David Godman once saying that In quotation marks. Bhagwan always insisted that self-inquiry was for the dissolution of the the sense of an individual self, but Bhagwan did also admit that if you took up the practice sincerely, good things would happen to you. You become peaceful, quiet, and Bhagwan even said self-inquiry is the best medicine. If you practice it regularly, it was a good way of keeping the body healthy. Kumarji from Brahmana Center of Bengaluru shared in one of his talks, again, a quotation marks, Kapali Shastri once queried Bhagwan about the dharma of self-inquiry and its transformative impact. Bhagwan responded, the body is inert and unconscious, while the pure eye is is brimming with consciousness. In between, a false entity has emerged, participating in both qualities. The body's dharma is inertness, and for our Atma it is absolute pure consciousness. However, the ego rising in between the two claims, I am the body, and partakes in both the pure, and partakes in both the inert body and pure consciousness. When you practice self-attention, as Bhagwan is instructing, the ego being self-attentive rather than object-attentive, gradually diminishes its involvement in the inert body and increasingly engages in pure consciousness. I believe this is the essence, Michael. Uh, Is self-inquiry irrelevant to the contemporary individual's daily life? On the contrary, I believe it is crucial redirecting us away from attachment to the inert body towards active participation in absolute pure consciousness. Again, in quotation marks. Every good that has ever occurred to anyone anywhere in creation is due to the presence and radiance of the self. This practice, which is enabling you to turn you back to the light of the self, facilitates the occurrence of good without intentional effort. All good that ever happened to anybody in any part of creation because the self is because the self is there and shining. With this practice, which turns you back to the light of the self, what good would have happened by deliberate effort, happens without deliberateness, close quotation marks. Personally, I believe that Pagwan has restored upon us a practice that is holistic in every conceivable sense, the truth of which can only be enjoyed when you do the practice sincerely every single moment. What are your reflections on this, Michael?
0: Uh. Yes, as, as Bhagavan says in verse 10 of Upadeshu India, that I just referred to a short while ago, I spoke about verses 8, 9, and 10. In 10, he says, um, being subsiding in the pace from which we rose, that is karma and yoga, that is bhakti and jnana. What he implies thereby is that this simple practice of self attentiveness is the culmination. And the the pinnacle of all these other paths. So, if we are attending to to the extent to which we attend to ourselves, we thereby sub, we as ego thereby subside. And to the extent to which we thereby subside, we thereby remain in at the state of of a satbhava, which is the very um, the, the the nature of supreme devotion. So, there's nothing higher. Or beyond this practice of self attentiveness, this practice of self attentiveness will bestow all the benefits of of any other type of practice. So we no other practice is necessary if we are practicing this. Um, one thing, but uh, one point that was said in that um, in the question. Um, I don't know, it seemed to be part of a quotation, but it seemed to be the implication that um, that, uh, self-investigation is good for the health of the body. Um, In some book, I remember it it is recorded as if Bhagavan said that, but I think that is a little bit of a misunderstanding. Bhagavan often spoke in a very subtle and nuanced way, and sometimes people misunderstood what he was saying. That is, the health or sickness of the body is entirely according to prarabdha. As Bhagavan made clear, these things are already predetermined. There's nothing we can do to change what is destined to happen. To happen means happen in the external life. So, um, as Bhagavan wrote in the note... uh, for uh, his mother, that which is never to happen will not happen in spite of any amount of effort. That which is to happen will not stop in spite of any amount of obstacle. This is certain. So we shouldn't be seeking the... We shouldn't be expecting but, but if I practice self-investigation, this will improve the health of my body. The health of our body is already determined by prarabdha. We can leave that. That should not concern us. So long as we're concerned about the health of the body, we are not having wholehearted love to know and to be what we actually are. So we should be unconcerned about the body. However, this doesn't mean that there is no... Um, but as, uh, as I think David Godman was trying to say in that uh, passage, but was quoted, that is, there uh, we can say tangible benefits in our life if we practice this self investigation. That is, it will not change what we are destined to experience, it will not make the body helper fear, it will not remove the obstacles about the, the difficulties we had to face in life it will not solve the mundane problems of life the difference it will make it will make us more and more detached and therefore less and less concerned about these things this body we all know it's perishable and as bhagavan said the body itself is a disease so if a disease comes to this disease that's good for us bhagavan jokingly used to say but it's true that this body is a disease so we shouldn't be we we shouldn't be seeking the health of the body because people have spent um for thousands of years people have been seeking perfect health but we <laughs> However much care we take of this body, it is inevitably going to get grow old. And however healthy we may be, we're all susceptible to getting diseases. Even if we avoid diseases, there are accidents that can happen. So this body is such a, a fragile and undependable thing. So the benefit we get from, to the extent to which we practice self-attentiveness, we are thereby withdrawing ourselves within and we thereby become less and less concerned about the external life so the problems we are destined to face we are still face both problems i mean who, who who in this world has a life free of problems Problems are there for everyone. So it's the nature of embodied existence. It's the nature of samsara. So we, we shouldn't be looking for expecting a life free of troubles. If we are expecting that, we're going to be sorely disappointed because it, life is never free of troubles. We all face troubles in one form or, or other. But the difference that is made by self-investigation, it will not change what is happening in, the external world, in our external life at all. But what it will change is our attitude towards that. We'll be more and more detached from whatever may be happening. So we'll be less concerned. Difficulties will become, but okay, it's the nature of life. Difficulties come, difficulties go. But but things, the problems that loom so large in our life now, but we seem to us to be such big problems, in ten years' time, we'll have forgotten about these problems, we'll, 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 and we'll be having other problems instead. So, let us not be concerned about these things. We need to detach ourselves. That is this path of, that Bhagavan has taught us, is the path is not the path of pravity, but the path of nivritti. Pravritti means making effort, going outwards, trying to achieve this or that, trying to become healthier or richer or more famous or. Um, have more friends or whatever it is, trying to trying to achieve anything outwardly is prabrity. But this is the path of nivrity, which is the path of withdrawal. We are withdrawing ourselves from the many back towards the one, the one being our own self. So we are less and less concerned about the external things and we are more and more satisfied in our own being. So Definitely, if we are following Bhagavan's path of self-investigation and self-surrender, to the extent to which we're following his path, we're following this path, our life will be pleasant. That doesn't mean we'll be facing less difficulties, but we'll be less concerned about the difficulties that we face. Um, So, the, the, the the tangible benefit we can we can experience for ourselves from practicing this path. Even though we, we may not yet have annihilated ego, even on the path towards annihilating ego, that is the nature of this path is we are withdrawing more and more. We are becoming less and less concerned about the outward events of life. The outward events of life are all determined by prarabdha. And being concerned about the outward events of life Is futile. I can want to be very my body. I can want it to be very healthy. I can make all efforts to be very healthy. But if it's my destiny to be unhealthy, I'll be unhealthy. These things we cannot change. So making effort to change the external life is futile, as Bhagavan has made clear. The only effort that will But is really useful is this effort to turn within and thereby surrender ourselves. Turning within means to the extent to which we turn within, to the extent to which we turn our attention and hold on to our own being, to that extent we subside. And that subsidence of ego brought about by self investigation is surrender. So, to the extent to which we surrender ourselves in this way, we are less and less affected by anything external so but the the only effort that will can bring about uh, real results is this effort to be self attentive because any effort we make to change external circumstances are futile by trying to change the external circumstances we are just generating fresh but we we, we are doing our gamya, that is we are doing karma under the sway of uh, karma, that means action of mind, speech and body, we're doing under the sway of our vasanas. In other words, under the sway of our own will. Those actions are called agamya and agamya of a what bears fruit. The fruit gets stored in sanchita, and it uh, will later, at some point, maybe have to be experienced as prarabdha. So, b- there's no point. We, we are just unnecessarily generating fresh fruit um, by making effort to achieve anything external. But by making effort to turn within and thereby surrender ourselves, we are cutting at at the very root of karma, because the root of karma is ego. It is we as ego who are the doer of karma and the experiencer of the fruit of karma. So if you want to be free of karma, both of the action and of the fruit of the action, we need to remove the root And this path of self-investigation, this is directly cutting up that very root, namely ego. So the the benefit to be gained by self-attentiveness, is whatever benefit we may gain from any other spiritual practice, we gain from this practice of self-attentiveness, but to a much greater extent. And what we achieve by self-attentiveness is... It's the only thing that we can, it's the only real difference we can make in our life. That is, we cannot change the external life. The external life is determined according to by prarabdha, But turning within and surrendering ourselves, that is in that is not touched by prarabda at all. Bhagavan used to say, "Prarabdha affects only the outward term mind, but it can never prevent the mind turning within. So whether we turn our mind within or not, is up to us. We have that freedom. So this is the correct use of the freedom that we, that we, that we are naturally endowed with. As a jiva, we are naturally endowed with this uh, swatantra, this freedom. But, and we should make use of this freedom by turning our attention within. On the other hand, if instead of using our freedom to turn within, if we use our freedom to try to achieve this or that, we are just generating more, more fruit to be, we are just perpetuating the cycle of karma, of um, of action and the fruit of action, and thereby perpetuating the cycle of birth and death. So if you want to bring an end to all of this, this, this path of self-investigation, this is the only means that will cut up the very root. So by following this path, we get all the benefits that we may derive from doing any other type of spiritual practice, so no other spiritual practices are necessary if we attend to a, if our if our sole aim is to try to attend to ourselves as much as we can no other spiritual practices are necessary this is the this is the, the the pinnacle of karma and bhakti of yoga and jnana as Bhagavan makes clear in verse 10 of upadesha undia um, i hope that is a clear and adequate answer to
1: that question The next question is, uh, what is self and how can we identify ourselves with it? How can we always remember it? Um,
0: that is what we're here to find out. What is self? Um, firstly, self is not an it. It is our self. There's no, there's no thing called the self other than ourself. self. We are self of what we are seeking to know. The truth is, there is not a moment when we do not know ourselves. We always know I am. But though we know that we are, we do not know what we are, because what we are is nothing other than our existence, I am. So what we actually are is nothing other than I am. But though we know I am, and know ourselves as I am, we don't know ourselves as just I am. When we rise as ego, Instead of knowing ourselves as just "I am," we know ourselves as "I am this person," "I am this body." So our present awareness of ourselves is a false awareness. That is the real awareness, is the fundamental awareness "I am." Superimposed upon that real awareness "I am" is this false awareness "I am this or that," "I am Michael," "I am whoever." Um, So. We are not looking for anything that we do not know already. We already know I am. There's, no, there's never a moment when we do not know I am. The problem is, we instead of knowing just I am, we know so many other things. We know other things only when we rise as ego. In that, that is, in waking and dream, we rise as ego, identify ourselves as a body, and consequently are aware of the appearance of other things. In sleep, we do not rise as ego, therefore we do not identify ourselves with the body, therefore we are aware of nothing above and ourselves. As Bhagavan says in verse 4 of uh, napadu if oneself is a form, the world and God will be likewise. If oneself is not a form, who can see their forms and how? So, but, but we we are aware of this multitude of forms that constitute the world, only because we mistake ourselves to be a form, namely the form of this body, which is, as Bhagavan says in the next verse, is a form composed of five sheaves. That is the physical form of the body, the anamaya kosha, as it's called, the, the, the life that animates this body, or pranamaya kosha, as it's called, the mind, meaning the grosser functions of the mind, the thoughts, feelings, perceptions, memories, emotions, and so on. That's called manamaya kosha. The intellect, the discerning, judging, discriminating, reasoning aspect of the mind, that's called the Jnana maya koja. And uh, what drives all these, the cause behind all these, is the will, our Vasanas. That is called the Ananda Mayakosha or Karana Sarira, the causal body. So these five sheaves constitute the. Body that we take ourselves to be. So in other words, the body means the person. So whenever throughout the waking and dream state, we're aware of ourselves as this body consisting of five sheaths. And consequently, we're aware of other things. Because as Bhagavan says in that verse four, if oneself is a form, the world and God will be likewise. That is, when we limit ourselves as a form, we see a multitude of forms, and every form is different to every other form. So forms are all limited, finite things. So, you, and because we because we limit ourselves as a form of a body, even God seems to be something other than ourselves. God, who is one infinite whole. Because we've separated, we seemingly separate ourselves as this small form. God seems to us to be something separate from ourselves, and because he seems to be separate, he seems to be a form. Even if we say God is formless, the very idea that God is formless—that idea is itself a form. So we cannot, as Bhagavan said, we cannot know God as formless without knowing ourselves as formless. So, um, so long as we know ourselves as a form, we know only forms. But if we know, if we know ourselves as we actually are, if we know ourselves without form, then there, we will not be aware of any forms. We can see this clearly in sleep. In sleep, we we cease as soon as we fall asleep. We cease identifying ourselves as I am this body, and consequently, we cease to be aware of anything other than our own being. I am. So, but the whole problem is. But our rising as ego and taking ourselves to be a form of a body. And now I've forgotten, the, I, I started to answer the question. I've forgotten what the question is now.
1: Um, um, the question is what is self and how can we identify right. ourselves with it? How can we always remember it?
0: All right, yes, this is the other thing. So, self is that which is shining in us as I. We don't need to identify ourselves with ourself. All we need to do is to cease identifying with anything other than ourself. In other words, cease identifying ourself as I am this body. But it is the very nature of ego to always identify itself as I am this body. That is, as Bhagavan says in, um, in verse 25 of Uludunapadu, he describes ego as a formless phantom. It's formless because it's got no form of its own. And it's a phantom because it's got no substance of its own. It borrows its form from a body and it borrows its substance. That is, it's awareness, its existence, and its awareness. It borrows from Satchet, from pure awareness, pure existence, awareness, I am. So it's neither this nor that. So ego has got no separate existence. But he's how he what he says about ego in this verse is grasping form, it comes into existence, grasping form, it stands, grasping and feeding on form, it flourishes abundantly, leaving form, it grasps form. So the implication is the very nature of ego is to grasp form. The first form it grasps, as soon as it comes into existence, simultaneous with its coming into existence, it grasps the form of a body. Or to put it more precisely, it projects and grasps the form of a body, because the, the body doesn't exist independent of ego. Just like in, in a dream, as soon as we start dreaming, that is, the, the, the dream starts with our projecting a body, taking that body to be our, ourself, and through the five senses of that body, projecting an external world. Exactly the same happens in the waking state. So grasping form, it comes into existence. And ego cannot stand for a moment without grasping this body as I. So grasping form, it stands. It stands means it endures, it it persists. And having grasped the form of this body as I, it then uh, uh, feeds on other forms. It's constantly attending to things other than itself, things other formed. Uh, forms here means not just physical form. Form means anything that is in any way distinguishable from anything other thing. So all objects or phenomena are forms. So he, in the third sentence he says, grasping and feeding on forms, it flourishes abundantly. That is the food on which we as ego live and survive is attending to things other than ourselves. So it's a very nature of ego to grasp things. And since ego cannot stand for a moment without grasping some form, he says in the next sentence, leaving, uh, uh, leaving form, it grasps form. So if we leave one thing, we grasp something else. So the very nature of ego is to always grasp forms. So that this identification, I am this body, that is it's the nature of ego to identify itself as I am this body. That's why everyone often said, ego is nothing but the thought, I am this body, or the false awareness, I am this body. So, we don't need to replace one identification with another. Some people think, oh, if, if I'm not this body, then I should meditate. I am Brahman, I am Brahman, I am Brahman. But Bhagavan says, do you need to think I am a man, I am a man, I am a man. You know you're, a man means here a human being. Do you need to think I am a human being, I'm a human being? No, you know you're a human being because so long as you raise as ego, you experience yourself as a body. So it's you, you don't need to be meditating to think that. So we don't need to meditate, I am Brahman. What we need to do is to experience ourself as Brahman. Brahman is that ananda, that pure being, pure awareness, pure happiness, which is what, which is our own real nature. That is what we actually are. So how to experience ourself as that? We need to, so long as we are experiencing anything other than ourself, that which experiences other things is ego. So if we want to put an end to ego and to know ourselves as we actually are, we need to attend to ourselves alone. So if we hold on to our own being, all the adjuncts with which we've now identified ourselves will drop off. Because these adjuncts are not holding us. We are holding the adjuncts. The body doesn't say, that doesn't hold on to us. It's we who say, I am this body. So we're holding on to this body. So um if we, instead of holding on to anything else, if we just try to hold on to our own being, in other words, if we attend to ourself, to the extent to which we attend to ourself, the adjuncts will drop off, ego will subside, and the more we hold on to our being, the more ego will subside and eventually it will dissolve completely back in its source. So we don't need to identify with anything. All we need to do is to hold on to our own being and thereby let go of all the false identification. When the false identification remains, then our true identity will reveal itself as I am I. We don't even need to think I am I. So long as we're thinking I am I, who is thinking I am I? It's ego that's thinking I am I. So let's not even think I am I, let's just hold on to I. And everything will drop off, and our own real true identity will then shine forth as I am I. Not as the words I am I, but what the words I am I refer to. In other words, the clear recognition of ourself
2: as ourself alone.
0: So the whole purpose of this of Bhagavan's path is, is the investigation: who am I? So we are trying to find out what we actually are, what is the self? So any answer that can be given in words, it can only be a pointer. We ourselves need to experience ourselves as we actually are, and we can experience ourselves as we actually are only by attending to ourselves more and more and more. So I, I hope that adequately answered that
1: question. The next question is, My question is inspired by the following that I've read. Bhagwan says in verse B1 in Guru Vachakubai, quotation marks, give us sorry, give up thinking that the loathsome body is I. Know self which is eternal bliss, cherishing the ephemeral body as well as trying to know self is just like using a crocodile as a raft to cross a river. Close quotation marks. In Sadhu Om's explanation, he says, among others, that it is foolish to be obsessed about South Big Diet, good health, and so on. However, Pagwan does not intend to deny the necessity or wisdom of taking reasonable and moderate care of physical needs. But the major portion of our attention must be aimed directly at attaining self knowledge while attending to a bare minimum of necessities. My question is, I have struggled my entire life with being overweight. I seem helpless in changing this, though I was able to change my diet to veganism, thanks to your talks about it. Following Ramana's path, I surrender my bad habits and remind myself that I am not the body, but the pure being consciousness I am, trying to be self-attentive. But in the meantime, I also worry I'll get heavier and heavier and will get problems with my health. This gives stress, which leads to stress eating. However, Raman also said that the idea of being the body is itself the worst disease. My current position is that instead of worrying and being frustrated about my unsuccessful attempts, it is better to to redirect my attention from the not-self. And to focus my mind on surrender and self-investigation. For example, if I worry, I ask myself, who is the one who is worrying? Or if there is any overweight let, or if there is any overweight, let alone body in deep sleep. Since in the end, losing weight is not my priority but annihilating the false self-awareness, I am the body. I see this is the healthiest thing to do. Is this a correct approach in dealing with my overweight problems while following Ramana's teaching?
0: Uh, Yes, that's the right attitude. We all need to lose weight, but the weight we need to lose is not the weight of this body. If we lose the weight of ego, That itself will separate ourselves from the body, so all problems are solved. So the great burden we are all carrying is the burden of ego. So let us shed this burden by surrendering to Bhagavan. That is the the health of the body, the weight of the body, all these things are ultimately determined by prarabdha. So we cannot change these things. So why to concern ourselves with that which cannot be changed. That which can be changed is our rising as ego. That is what we need to put an end to. That is what we need to direct our attention towards. So some people happen to be overweight. There are multiple reasons for being overweight. Some of them are physiological. There there are certain hormones and things that cause some people to be uh, overweight. There are also... Uh, other things like stress and so on, call at least uh, um, binge eating and, and so on. There are multiple reasons, but why should we concern ourselves with any of these things? When the body is not I, we need to. Uh, that is the. We need not even worry about taking care of the body because, as Bhagavan made clear, the body, it's already. The course of life of the body is already determined by prarabdha. Whatever we need to do to take care of this body, we will be made to do. Earlier I referred to the note that Bhagavan wrote for his mother, but I read referred to only the second, third, and fourth uh, sentences. I didn't refer to the first and last sentences. What Bhagavan said in that note, the full note is, In accordance with the prarabdha of each one, he who is for that will cause the dance. Being there, there will cause the dance. What Bhagavan implies by that is, he who is for that means God, or Guru. Being there, there means being in each place, implying being in the heart of each one of us. And arthavipan means will cause to dance. In other words, he'll make us act in accordance with our prarabdhas. So, what does acting in accordance with our prarabdha mean? In order for our prarabdha to unfold, certain actions are necessary on our part. So, whatever actions are necessary. For the unfolding of our prarabdha, we will be our mind, speech, and body will be made to do those actions. So we need not concern ourselves with those actions. Bhagavan will make us do those. Will make our mind, speech, and body do those actions. Uh, in other words, we can leave the care of this body entirely in His hand. Not only the care of his body. If we have wife and children, or husband, or elderly parents or small children or grandchildren, we, we, we may have so many others who seem to be dependent on, on us. Lead that also to Bhagavan, because he will. if we need to do anything for our, for our elderly parents or for our um, husband or wife or for our children or anything, he will make our mind, speech and body do what they are meant to do in accordance with Prarabdha. So we need not worry about that at all. So that's the first sentence. However, one important thing to note about this first sentence, many people misunderstand this first sentence and think that Bhagavan is saying thereby, but whatever actions we do by mind, speech and body are actions we're made to do by God. That is not the intention. He says in accordance with prarabdha. So it's only those actions that are necessary for the prarabdha to unfold, but the actions we're made to do. Because the majority of our actions we're doing, under the, not under the sway of God's grace, we're doing under the sway of our vasanas. Um, that is what he warns us against in the next two sentences. In the, in the second sentence he says, endrum do, envyecikanum naduvadu." That means, um, what is never to happen will not happen in spite of any amount of effort. When he says, in spite of any amount of effort, that implies that we can make effort for what is not destined to happen. We can, uh, so that is we 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 cannot change what is destined to happen. But just because something is destined to happen, or not destined to happen, whichever the case may be, doesn't prevent us wanting otherwise. It may be my destiny to um, live all my life in poverty. But that doesn't stop me wanting to be rich. It doesn't stop me trying to be rich, but it stops me being rich. So I can, as much as I want, I can want to be rich. I can make all sorts of efforts to be rich. But however much effort I make, it is never to happen when I'm going to be rich, so I will never be rich. So we, we, we are free to want. Uh, what we want is not determined by prarabdha. Prarabdha determines what we are to experience. What we want is determined by our will. And what we try to experience, make effort to experience, that's also determined by our will. So we have that freedom to want whatever we want to want. And we have freedom to try for it, but we have no freedom to achieve it. Only that which is destined to happen is going to happen. If it's not destined to happen, it is not going to happen in spite of any amount of effort. And the flip side of that is what is destined to happen will not stop this is the third sentence, nādapadu uh, seyinum nilādu, whatever is, is, uh, is to happen will not stop in spite of any amount of obstacles, so we can try as much as we want to avoid uh, what is to happen. It's my destiny Behold, my whole life to live in poverty. I can try as much as I want to avoid living in poverty, by, but I'm going to fail because it's my destiny to live in poverty. And then the fourth sentence he says, this is certain. So what the whole of our external life is determined by prarabdha. Whatever we need to do to take care of this body or to take care of our loved ones or anything else, in accordance with Prarab, we will be made, this mind, speech, and body will be made to do. So what is the conclusion Bhagavan comes to at the end of that? The fifth sentence is, ahalin monamai irike nandru. Therefore, being silent is good. So what does he mean by being silent? Does he mean that we should sit uh, sh- sit like a stone in Nibhikalpa Samadhi or something and not do anything? No, because but actions, but we but we but we need to do in accordance with destiny, we'll be made to do. So there's no wrong in I mean those actions, we cannot avoid those actions. So what Bhagavan means by being silent is good is be truly being silent is not rising as ego. It's only when we rise as ego that we say, I am doing this, I am experiencing that. If we cease rising as ego, we are neither the doer of karma nor the experiencer of the fruit of karma. So being silent is good means not rising as ego. But but, but silence is our own real nature. So just being as we actually are without rising as ego, that alone is good, is the implication. So the the condition of the body, whether it's healthy or unhealthy, whether it's... uh, overweight or underweight or normal weight or whatever it is, these are all according to prarabdha. So let us not worry about these things. Let us be concerned only about losing the weight that we but we really need to lose and that's in our power to lose. That is the weight of this ego, this burden that we are carrying, this false awareness, I am this body. This is the, what we need to lose. That is the weight we need to shed. If we shed that weight, we then remain as we always actually are at the pure, as such, it, the pure being awareness I am. So uh, don't, your, the attitude you have that you've now, that you've you've now arrived at is the correct attitude. If the, if your body is destined to be overweight, it will be overweight. If it's destined one day to lose weight, it will lose weight. So why should you worry about these things? Things will happen as they're meant to happen. What we have to do is to cease to be concerned about all these things and be concerned about only one thing, that is surrendering ourselves. And we can surrender ourselves. Only by clinging firmly to self attentiveness and thereby not rising as ego. So I hope that is an adequate answer to your question. Oh, and by the way, that verse that you refer to as "Be one of uh, of Guru Vachakubai." Yes, it was originally written as part of Guru Vachakubai, but it was also included in Ulladunapdu Anubandham. It's verse twelve in Uludunapdu Anubandham. And the first two lines of that verse, that is the second two lines. The analogy of taking of of a, of a crocodile, um, of taking a, a crocodile as a raft across a river. That is a translation from one of the works of Adi Shankara. I think it's a work called Tatpuru I'm, I'm not sure about that, but it, it's a, it's anyway from some verse of Adi Shankara. The first two lines, Bhagavan himself wrote that. Cease, cease uh, cherishing this ephemeral body as I know yourself. Um, and then the analogy, but the uh, Bhagavan uh, borrowed from Shankara, but cherishing this ephemeral body while trying to know oneself is like taking a, a crocodile as a raft across a river.
2: I'll
1: move on to the next question. Yeah. So the next question is If no world exists except to the ego, which is the false awareness, I am this body, can the pure awareness I am know objects such as thoughts or the world? I can understand that the objects are known as our self but how can God or Bhagwan know our thoughts or actions in order to arrange Apra In other words, does God or Bhagwan know objects or the world? And also on the subject of karma, do we suffer the fruits of our actions and reactions during this lifetime? For example, does our, do our lifestyle choices affect our health in this life?
0: Um, to answer the last bit first, um, no. Whatever we do in this life, whatever agamya we do in this life—that is, whatever actions we do under the sway of our vasanas in this life—gets stored in sanchita. The fruit of those actions gets stored in sanchita, and uh, sanchita means the uh, sanchita literally means a heap or a pile. That is the store of the fruits of past actions. But are yet to be experienced. What we are to experience in this lifetime is according to Prarabdha, which is ordained before this body comes into existence, or at the moment this body comes into existence. So we have no, uh, we nothing we do in this lifetime can affect the course of events. Otherwise, we could be trying to change, uh, we could be trying to change events. But Bhagavan has said, What is never to happen will not happen, however much effort we make. What is to happen will not stop in spite of any amount of obstacle. So we cannot, nothing that we do in this lifetime is going to have any impact on what is going to happen in this lifetime. But fruit of what we do in this lifetime will get stored in the Sanchita and may be allotted for us later. Um, So that's that part of it. Regarding the first part.
2: Is there, is there anything that ego
0: knows, but uh, Bhagavan doesn't know? Let's put it that way. Bhagavan mean, by Bhagavan, I mean our own real nature, what we actually are. So, is there anything that ego knows, but Bhagavan doesn't know? It would be obviously very pretentious of ego to claim to know things but Bhagavan doesn't know. So, in a certain sense, Bhagavan knows everything that we know. However, we need to understand something. This is best illustrated by by an analogy. Supposing we are walking with Bhagavan in the dim light of dusk along a a dark path, we see something lying on the path ahead of us. To us, it looks like a snake. So we say, oh, Bhagavan, Bhagavan, there's a snake there, we can't go any further. Bhagavan sees very clearly, but it's just a rope. So he assures us, um, don't, don't worry, it's, just, it's, just a, um, it's, it's, it's not a snake, it's just a rope. But to us, it still looks like a snake, so we are still afraid of it. So knowing that, that we need to see for ourselves, Bhagavan will say, look at it very carefully. If we look at it very carefully, what do we see? Oh, it's just a rope. But, In our time of ignorance, when we saw it as a as a snake, and Bhagavan saw it as a rope, are we seeing anything that Bhagavan is not seeing? No, we are seeing exactly. But what what we are seeing and what Bhagavan is seeing is exactly the same. The difference is in what we see it as, whereas Bhagavan sees it as it is, namely as a rope. We see it as something that it is not, namely a snake exactly the same now. Whatever we experience is not any different to what Bhagavan experiences. But whereas Bhagavan experiences it as one indivisible, immutable whole, namely himself, we experience it as all this multiplicity. So, in a sense, Bhagavan knows everything that we know. But he doesn't know it as we know it. We know that is what actually exists is only one, namely ourself, which is Bhagavan also. Whereas Bhagavan knows that as it is, we know it as all this multiplicity. So in a certain sense, Bhagavan does know everything, but he doesn't know it as we know it. We know it as all this multiplicity. He knows it as it is. So, in a certain sense, we can say, no, Bhagavan doesn't know all this multiplicity. He doesn't know thoughts, actions, the world, any of these things. He just knows the pure being. But what he knows as the pure being is what we know as all this. So um, this is a very deep and subtle thing. So there's a certain sense in which it's true to say Bhagavan knows all this. There's a certain sense in which it's true to say Bhagavan doesn't know any of this. He knows the only thing that actually exists. Um, because what Bhagavan knows and what we know is exactly the same, but he knows it as it is. We know it as all this multiplicity. Um, how does. So if Bhagavan doesn't know all these actions as we know, then how is he ordaining the fruit of our actions? This happens automatically. The reason is that is what is the nature of Bhagavan? Bhagavan is such is ananda. He's infinite being, infinite awareness, infinite happiness, and also by implication, infinite love. Happiness and love are truly just two sides of the same coin. So, Bhagavan is infinite love. Because Bhagavan doesn't see anything other than himself, he loves everything as himself. So he loves us as himself. That means he doesn't see us as the person that we see ourselves as. We mistake ourselves to be this person. He sees us as we actually are and he loves us as we actually are. So that infinite love that he has for us as himself is what we experience as his grace. That What grace wants is nothing but for us to be happy, because happiness is our real nature. So the the nature of grace is to lead us back to the state of oneness, to our real nature. How grace leads us back is obviously beyond the mind. We cannot understand the the subtle workings of grace. As Bhagavan says in the first verse of Arunacha Ashtakam, Arivaru giri ena, adi sale Ari very Darkum. That means um, uh, it stands as an insentient hill, uh, but but ah, its action is is, is beyond comprehension, It cannot be understood. When he says its action, he means the action of its grace. So it seems to be just an insentient hill in our view, but it is actually the. The, 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 the very embodiment of pure awareness, and how it works, cannot be understood. Does, does that mean Arunach is doing some work? Does that mean Bhagavan is doing some work? No, he's not doing anything. But by just being as he is, he is doing everything. This is what Bhagavan often used to call doing without doing. So the, the nature of the action of grace is beyond our comprehension. Because how can we understand action without action, doing without doing? We can't understand. It's it's beyond the, the grasping power of our mind. So it is the action of grace that is allotting the fruit of our actions. And remember that grace is nothing but Bhagavan bhagavan is love the love, the, the love that we experience as bhagavan is, is itself bhagavan he, he's not anything other but he and his love are not two different things he is love itself so he is grace itself so his grace automatically allots the fruit of our actions in the most appropriate way so as he bhagavan says in the first verse of upadesha Undia, um uh um, karta rajnya prapyade palam karma kim param karma tachyadam, or in Tamil, um, um, karmam payantal kartana Danael karmam kadavalo undipara karmam jadamadal undipara. The, the, the action giving fruit is according to the ordainment of God, that means it is God who determines which fruit. Are to be allotted for each action, and when, where, and how that fruit is to be uh, is to be experienced. So that's all determined by God. Karma is um, can karma be God? Yes, karma can karma be God because karma is insentient. So karma cannot determine its own fruit. There has to be some sentient, some. Power of awareness behind it, directing all this. But it's not that Bhagavan knows each and every detail and is working out, oh, for this action, which will be the appropriate fruit. Uh, It's just by being the infinite love that he actually is, he all, without doing anything, he does everything. He allots all the fruits of karma. So, as, as he says in the 15th paragraph of Nana, these. All these divine functions, the five divine functions, the pancha krittia, that is the creation, sustenance, destruction um, of the universe, the veiling, that is the veiling of self, of ignorance, and the uh, anugraha, the grace, all these five divine functions happen by Isan, Sanidana, Visacha, Matratav. That means by the by the mere special nature of the presence of God. The presence of God means his being. By by just being as he is, Bhagavan does everything. So, obviously our minds cannot comprehend it. It's beyond the the comprehension of our mind. But without knowing anything other than himself, Bhagavan knows everything. Without uh, doing anything, he does everything. So, Uh, basically what I'm saying is I cannot answer your question because nobody can answer it if you want to know the answer to this question you need to know Bhagavan as Bhagavan knows himself and you can know Bhagavan as Bhagavan knows himself only by knowing yourself as Bhagavan knows you because what you actually are is nothing other than Bhagavan so from the perspective of ego or mind this will always be an incomprehensible mystery, but subtle workings of grace. How grace works cannot be understood by the mind. But we we have the assurance of Bhagavan, there is that great power of grace that is driving everything. As he says in the uh, in the 13th paragraph of Nana, when one parameshwara shakti, when one uh, supreme ruling power or power of God is driving all carriers that everything that's meant to happen is being made to happen by that one supreme uh, um uh, paramisa Shakti that is the the um but that, that, in effect, is saying grace. By grace, everything is happening as it's meant to happen. So when such is the case, why should we, instead of yielding ourselves to it, be constantly thinking I should do this, it's necessary to do this, it's necessary to do that? We need to surrender ourselves completely. And then he gives the beautiful analogy of the passenger travelling on a train. When you're traveling on the train, the train is carrying all the burden. So there's no need for you to carry your luggage on your head. You can put your luggage aside and you can travel at ease. If you want to carry your luggage on your head, you can do so, but you're suffering unnecessarily because whether you carry the luggage or not, the train is carrying it. So he is taking care of everything. So whether we're obese or whether we're healthy or unhealthy or whatever it may be, whether we whatever difficulty we face in life, we leave the whole burden to him, let him take care of everything. Our only, The only responsibility he's given to us is to surrender ourselves to him. And we can surrender ourselves to him only by clinging firmly to self-attentiveness. As he says in the first sentence of that 13th paragraph of Nana, anma chintane tavira, vera chintane kalambo vataku, satram idum kodamal, um, um isanaku uh, alipadam. That means being In other words, being as we actually are is giving ourselves to God. So how can we be as we actually are? That's indicated in the first clause. Anma not giving even the slightest room to raising up any thought. Other than thought of oneself, abmachintena. Abmachintena literally means thought of oneself. It implies self-attentiveness. So the implication is we need to be so keenly self-attentive, but we give no room for the arising of any other thought, because thoughts can arise only if we attend to them. If we all our attention is given to ourselves, there's no room for any other thought to arise. So when no other thought arises, ego also won't arise, because ego cannot rise without uh, grasping other things. So by attending to ourselves, we bring about the dissolution of the subsidence of ego. All other thoughts subside with ego, and thereby we remain as Param, one who is firmly established as oneself. And that, Bhagavan says, is giving ourselves to God. So this is all Bhagavan has asked us to do, to surrender ourselves by clinging firmly to self-attentiveness. He will take care of everything else. So coming back to the first question I was asked, yes, if we really follow this path Bhagavan has shown us, we are surrendering ourselves to Him. So of course our life is so much easier. Instead of carrying your luggage on the train, if you put your luggage aside, you'll have a much more comfortable journey. So uh, you you're not changing the destination you're going to. You're not changing the course of your life by putting aside the burden. the train is going to carry it. It's going. Your life is going to go on as it's already destined to go on. It's running along the rail tracks already pre already the, the, the prarabdhis like the rail tracks along which our life is to run. So we're all we're going to run along those rail tracks anyway. But Instead of carrying the burden on our head, if we put it aside, we're happy. So how can we put aside the burden? Only by clinging firmly to self-attentiveness, by giving no room to arising any thought other than apmachintana. In other words, being so keenly self-attentive, we give no room for any other thoughts to arise. Thereby, we are surrendering ourselves to Bhagavan. His grace will take care of everything. So, I I hope that adequately answered that question.
1: The next question is, um, yeah, the question is, is realizing I am, or our true identity, our real nature, or whatever name we give it, is that enough? Is it really that simple? And what is life after that for? I mean, what more remains to know now? Thank you in anticipation for providing the opportunity to ask this question.
0: In the, um, in the uh, third verse of uh, Anma Bide, sorry, fourth verse, uh, no, uh, do I mean fourth? Or, uh, no, yeah, the third verse of, of Anma Bide. Bhagavan says, Tane aridal indri pinne edu arihil en. Without knowing oneself, if one knows whatever else, what? That means, so what? What's the what, benefit of knowing anything else when we don't know ourselves? And then he goes on to say, Tanne arindidil pinne uludu aria. If one has known oneself, then what exists to know? That is, if we know ourselves as we actually are, there's nothing else to know. All other things appear only when we rise as ego. And we rise as ego is nothing but a false awareness of ourselves. Ego is destroyed, only, since ego is a false awareness of ourself, it can be destroyed only by correct awareness of ourself. So if we know ourself as we actually are, we thereby put an end to ego, and then there's nothing else to know. That is, we know all that it, there is to know, because nothing other than ourself actually exists. So, um, yes, whatever you call it, re- realisation or whatever, it doesn't matter. Knowing ourself is all there is to know. If we know ourselves, there's nothing else to know. If we don't know ourselves, what is the use of knowing anything else, as Bhagavan says? Um, <clears throat> sorry, I was just, uh, there's one other thing I was going to say on that. Oh, yeah, about this realization. Um, Bhagavan's... Bhagwan generally didn't speak in English. He understood English, but he didn't. Uh, he generally didn't speak in English, but sometimes he would. There, there were certain things, but he could say only in English. So um, about the, the, this term self-realization is a very popular term in English. Bhagavan sometimes used to joke about this. He used to say how to realize what is always real. We cannot realize what is always real. The problem is we have unrealized. We sorry. The problem is we have realized the unreal. What is unreal we have realized. So all this body and world which are unreal we have realized them. We have taken them to be real. So Bhagavan said, it is not necessary to realize what is real. All that is necessary is to unrealize what is unreal, and the real alone will remain. So something to that effect, Bhagavan said in English. So uh, there's nothing to realize. All we need to do is to to cease taking the unreal to be real. We can cease taking the unreal to be real by knowing what is actually real. What is actually real is only I am. So turning our attention within, we thereby know ourselves as we actually are and unrealize all the unreal. We know what is real, and thereby unrealize the unreal.
2: David Rajamudliya,
0: by the way, has recorded this in day by day, but he didn't make clear there. But that was something that Bhagavan said in English, because he recorded it all in English. So unfortunately, he didn't point out that this is something Bhagavan actually said in English.
2: because he was joking about the English term,
0: realisation.
1: Should we move on to the next question,
0: Michael? Yes.
1: So the question is, it's sort of in two parts, but they refer to the same thing. Silence is a key requirement for self-inquiry, but the biggest hurdle I find is the burden of expectations and responsibilities, such as work and family, of worldly life which keeps pulling the mind always engaged away from the self and self-inquiry. Even finding time for meditation feels impossible. Is there anything we can do? And the second part is um, trying to dedicate... The first part? Can I answer uh, the first part first? It's, so, it's sort of the okay. same thing. Okay, okay. Um, trying to dedicate time for focusing on self-inquiry away from responsibilities and duties, especially works, uh, especially work, generates the fear that I won't be able to deliver on my family responsibilities. Can something be done to address this?
0: Okay, this is like saying, um, yes, I understand that I shouldn't carry the burden on my head, but it's too heavy for me to put aside. If we, are, if we trust that the train is carrying all the burden, we will happily put it aside. It's heavy because we're carrying it. If we put it aside, it's no longer heavy. So if we are if we are willing to trust Bhagavan, but Bhagavan will take care of everything, we will find that that if if we trust him to take care of our external life, then we will be free to turn within. Whatever. We whatever actions our mind, speech, and body need to do to take care of our work, our family, our responsibilities—all these things—if we surrender this mind, speech, and body to Bhagavan by clinging to self attentiveness, He will make this mind, speech, and body do whatever they're meant to do. Even if we don't surrender, He will still make this mind, speech, and body do whatever they. They're meant to do so by thinking. I am responsible for this. I have to take. I have my work. I have this responsibility. I have that responsibility. I've got my family. I've got this. I've got that. Um, we, we are unnecessarily carrying the burden on our head. Bhagavan is asking us: leave aside the burden. It's not your burden. God is car- When God is carrying the entire burden of the universe, can He not carry your trivial little burden? So trust him, leave everything to him. That that is what that is the what is special about Bhagavan's path. By clinging to self-attentiveness, we are surrendering the burden. We are handing over responsibility for our mind, speech, and body, and for our family and our loved ones and everything, and our work and everything. We are handing over responsibility to Bhagavan. Who is anyway taking care of all these things? That one Parameshwara Shakti, namely Bhagavan, is driving all carriers. He's making everything happen as it's meant to happen. So why should we uh, foolishly think that we, it depends on us. It doesn't depend on us. It, everything depends upon him. If we depend upon him, then we are free of a burden. It's when we, when we fail to depend upon him. Who is actually when we fail to rely, trust the train to carry our luggage, but we suffer carrying that luggage on our head. But what more foolish thing can there be to do? So we we need to. That is, the more we turn our attention within, the more we are that when turning our attention within means turning our attention back towards the light. The light of pure awareness that always shines in our heart, as I am. So, the more we turn our mind towards that light, the more our mind is thereby purified and clarified. The more our mind is purified and clarified, the more we will grow to trust Bhagavan. So, these, this, um, this, uh, this trusting Bhagavan. And this self-investigation, they go hand in hand. To the extent to which we go deep in self-investigation, our trust in him will grow deep. And to the extent to which our trust grows deep, we will be able to go deep in self-investigation. So we we, we just need to leave all these uh, concerns about other things aside. Try our best to turn within, and we the more we turn within, the more we will find that life is going on automatically. It's being driven by that that Parameshwara Shakti, that supreme higher that higher powers, as it's often recorded in books of Bhagavan said that when he said the higher power, he means the power of grace, the power that Parameshwara Shakti. So that power of Bhagavan's love is the power that is carrying this whole universe. When he when he's carrying the entire burden of the whole universe, will he not carry also our little burden? So let us trust in him, and the sign of our trust in him is to the extent to which we are turning our attention within and holding on to him in our heart, where he is always shiny as I am. To that extent, we are truly trusting him. There's no use in saying, "Oh, I love Bhagavan. I trust Bhagavan." But still carrying the burden on our head. We are not really trusting Bhagavan. We we may tell ourselves that we trust Bhagavan, but we don't really trust him. If we really trust him, we will leave all the burden to him and we will cling to him in our heart. So this bhakti-māga and jñāna-māga, they're inseparable. If we understand either properly, it is clear that they are
2: one and the same path. I hope that adequately answered that question.
1: Okay, the next question is, It's uh, thank you for the opportunity of being here. And my question is, why does the spider go out to weave its web? What drives it to take on a path that seems to involve some suffering, Um, all all those suffering after all, let me repeat it, why does the spider go out to weave its web? What drives it to take on a path that seems to involve involve some suffering? Um, Although suffering after all, I think it just means uh, it seems to involve suffering.
0: I take it the spider in this case is the mind or ego. It is the mind or ego that projects this world, like a spider projects the the thread it hangs down on, and then it absorbs it back into itself. Like that, as Bhagavan says in the fourth paragraph of Nana, the mind projects the world from within itself and again absorbs it back into itself. So why does the mind do this? Well, let the mind answer. That is, we are the mind who have projected all this. So this is our foolishness. The only only reasonable explanation that can be given for all this is foolishness. Because why, as you say, why should we court suffering? By rising as ego, we are courting suffering. If we cease rising as ego, we remain at the infinite happiness that we actually are. So inviting suffering by rising as ego is foolishness. So rather than asking, why am I so foolish, let's just give up being foolish. Let's turn within, cling to self-attentiveness, and put an end to this foolishness of rising as ego and thereby projecting this world. There's really no adequate answer to questions of why and how all this came into existence, because as Bhagavan said, all this seems to exist only in the view of ego. So, why did ego come into existence? If we investigate it, we will see that it has never come into existence. So the question how it came into existence or why it came into existence is a redundant question. Has ego come into existence even now? It seems to have done because we see, see other things. But instead of looking at other things, if we look at ourselves, we'll see that there's no such thing as ego at all. Taidinal Otempiticum. If sought, it takes flight. So we seem to be ego only when we don't look at ourselves. So as Bhagavan used to say, why is all this, why is all this uh, um, appearing? Only because of avichara, that is non-investigation. Only because we failed to attend to ourselves, all this seems to exist. If we attend to ourselves, we will see what we actually are, the one, infinite, indivisible, uh, immutable ananda, and nothing else has ever appeared, because everything appears only in the view of ego. So only if ego exists, other things seem to exist. But does this ego exist? If we investigate it, there's no such thing. So the problem is solved. Either this question or one of the other questions was asking, is it really so simple? Yes, it is so simple. Everyone says, knowing oneself is so extremely easy, more than any other path. This path is, he says, extremely easy. So why does it seem to us to be difficult? It seems to be difficult only because we are not yet willing to let go. Putting our luggage aside and traveling comfortably on the train is very easy. If we, if, if we are uh, suffering carrying our luggage on our head, it's not because it's difficult to put the luggage aside, it's because we are reluctant to do so. We're still so attached to our identity. I am this person. I have this responsibility. I have to do this. I have to do that. These are my my uh, family, my uh, children, my parents, my husband, my wife, My all this. We, we, we're clinging to all these things. If we let go and cling to Bhagavan in our heart, he will take care of everything. And we won't have to worry about anything. So yes, the answer is, yes, this is so, so, so simple. It's we who
2: make it difficult for ourselves by carrying our burden on our head.
1: The next question, uh, there are two questions together ask the first one first. Um, The question is, when Pagwan talks of the first, second, and third persons, I just want clarification to make sure I understand Pagwan correctly. Is it first person I, me, our, ours, myself, and then the second person is you, yours, yourself, and the third person is she, her, he, him, they, themselves, their, theirs.
0: Um, In grammar, yes. uh, The first person is I, second person is you, and third person, he, she, it. But Bhagavan is not talking about grammar here. He's talking in a philosophical sense. So in philosophy, the first person is the subject, I. Uh, The second and third persons are objects. So you, What Bhagavan, when Bhagavan talks about first person, second person, third person, we can think of it simply in terms of first person is I, the subject, second and third persons are all other things, objects, phenomena. So everything other than ourself is, is a second or third person. So as he says in, um, um, in Nana, for example, in the... Um, In the fifth paragraph of Nana, he says, um, Of all the thoughts that appear in the mind, the thought called I alone is the first thought. Only, and the term first thought is uh, mudal ninevu. Mudal can mean first. Primal, basic, original, or causal. So that is the the root thought, the the first thought, the thought called I. Only after this rises do other thoughts rise. Only after the first person appears do second and third persons appear. So the first person is the thought called I. The second and third persons are all other thoughts, all other things. uh, so, only after the first person appears, do second and third persons appear. That means only after ego rises, all other things appear. Without the first person, second and third persons do not exist. So, without ego, nothing else exists. But the, 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 the second and third persons, in other words, all phenomena, all objects, exist only in the view of the first person, the subject, namely ego. And he also uh, uses these same terms in verse 14 of Ulladunapadu, in which he says, um, if the first person exists, second and third persons will exist. If if one self-investigating the reality of the first person, the first person ceases to exist, second and third persons coming to an end, the nature that shines as one alone is oneself, the state of oneself. What he means by that is, if ego exists, that means if ego exists, second and third persons, everything else will exist. If the first person ceases to exist by one's in, by oneself investigating the reality of the first person, so how do we bring an end to this first person, the ego, only by investigating its reality? So, what is the reality of the first person? The, re- the first person, in the Kalivenba version of this verse, he, he added before the first word of the verse, first word is tanmai, which means first person. He added udlnaan ennum at tanmai. That means, if uh, the first person called, I am this body. In other words, e- ego, the false awareness, I am this body, if that exists, everything else will exist. And but, so, what is, the re- what is the what do you mean by investigating the reality of the first person? Since the first person is the adjunct conflated awareness, I am this body, the reality of the first person is the pure awareness, I am. So, we can put an end to the rising of ego, the first person, only by investigating the reality of the first person, namely that fundamental awareness I am. So, when we investigate the 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 reality of this first person, namely I am, the first person will cease to exist, and so second and third persons will come to an end. And what will then remain alone, that that nature, but will alone re- remain and that shines as one, undivided by this appearance of the three persons, alone is oneself. That is what we actually are. That is the real state of ourself. So, put very simply, what he means by first person is ego, the subject. What he means by second and third persons is all other things. If we want to analyze it further, Bhagawan didn't didn't Bhagavan generally club second and third persons together. But if you want to make a distinction between the second and third persons, in Tamil, the word for second person is munile. Munile means what stands in front. And the word the, the word for third person is padaké. Padake means what spreads out. So we can we we can say what is imme- what we are immediately aware of. That is what is exactly what presented to our five senses. That is the uh, um, the second person. The rest of the world that we know about by hearsay or by inference or whatever. That is what is happening in. Um, in Gaza for example it's not something that's immediately presented to us unless we happen to be there we we hear about it on the news we may watch it on the television but it is a it's something out there so that is the third person but it's not really necessary to or another way we can analyze it we can say the the um what we experience is perceptions. So we, we, we experience sights, sounds, smells, tactile sensations. These are the second persons. We assume these are caused by some external world. So we can say the external world is the third person, and the, what we're actually experiencing in our mind is the second person. We can analyze it in various ways, but this is not necessary because, why? Because these second and third persons are all non-self. So, as Bhagavan said in, um, in uh, Nana, just like it's not necessary for the barber to, to, to analyze the rubbish in the barber shop, at the end of the day's work, in the barber shop, there's so much hair on the floor. Um, what, what needs to be done with that, um, that, all that, the hair on the floor? It needs to be swept up and discarded. Instead of that, if you begin to analyze, how many uh, long hairs, how many short hairs, how many grey hairs, how many black hairs, how many red hairs, how many blonde hairs, how many curly hairs, how many straight hairs, how many uh, long hairs, how many short hairs. All that is unnecessary. It's all rubbish. It's all to be thrown out. So uh, so analyzing anything that is not ourself is futile. So second and third persons are objects, phenomenal. We need not analyze them. We, they're all for rejecting. What we need to do is to analyze, is to investigate not even the first person, the reality of the first person. If we analyze if we if we investigate the reality of the first person, in other words, if we tend just to I am, the the, the unreality of the first person, namely all the adjuncts, will drop off and the reality alone will remain. And that reality is the one that shines alone. That's our real nature. I hope that's a clear answer to that question. Okay.
1: Um, The next uh, question, uh, part of it is, is there any reason why the quest for self-realization should be put off, or should anything or should any reason the mind gives you to delay self-realization be ignored? Are all apparent blockages to self-realization just imagined? In other words, self-inquiry should be our priority question. Sorry, I can't give a specific example. I see there is no end to the mind talk and how it is a master trickster.
0: Yes, we will find, because, so long as we... Are not willing to surrender ourselves completely. We will find every excuse to um, avoid attending to ourselves. Oh, I've got this important work to do. I've got that important work to do. Nothing is important. The only thing that is important is knowing and being what we actually are. So, turning our attention, there's nothing can be more important than turning our attention within. And as I, as Bhagavan made clear, attending to anything other than ourselves is futile because we, we can't change anything. And if we want to know about other things, what is the use of knowing anything else when we don't even know what we ourselves are? And if we know what we ourselves are, what else is there to know? There's nothing else to know. So there's nothing so important as attending to ourselves there cannot conceivably be anything more important than attending to ourselves. So that's all we have to do. That's why that's um, coming back to that question about the first question about bhavana. It doesn't matter what reason we have for attending to ourselves, but we have to constantly remind ourselves that nothing is as important as attending to ourselves. All other efforts we make are futile. They cannot, they cannot, we, there cannot be any benefit in any other effort that we make. Because everything is going to happen as it's meant to happen. So let it all happen. What we should be concerned about is attending to ourselves. But we had to continually remind ourselves of this because otherwise we will we will find any number of excuses that, oh, this is important, this is important, I need to do this, I need to do that. I've got to catch a plane, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. But if we, if we, if we attend to ourselves, everything that is meant to happen is going to happen as it's meant to happen. If we don't attend to ourselves, everything that's happened is going to happen as it's meant to happen. So we, we don't change the external course of events in any way, whether we attend to ourselves or not. But by attending to ourselves, we free ourselves of the burden of the external life. And leave everything in the hands of Bhagavan. In other words, we surrender by attending to ourself, which is Bhagavan. We are surrendering to him our mind, speech and body. So let him take care of everything. And of course, he will take care of them much better than we can take care of them. So let's leave the whole burden
2: to him.
1: Um, okay. The next question is, did Pagwan ever talk about the three energy centers of the head, the heart, and the gut, the hara, and focusing on those to stop the rising as ego? In my experience, not rising as ego means staying in the heart or the hara and not going up into the thinking mind. Is this the same thing as not rising as ego that Bhagwan spoke of? I've had experience of complete stillness after focusing on the point of the hara just below the belly. But uh, many thanks.
0: The body is an object. Every point in the body is an object. By attending to objects, we are just nourishing and, and feeding ego. As Bhagwan says, grasping form Grasping and feeding on form, it flourishes abundantly. Such is the nature of ego. So what Bhagavan has asked us to attend to is not to any point in the body, not to any object, but only to the reality of the first person, the reality of the subject. So who am I? That is what we should be attending to. What is beside? that? That is, we're not to ask the question, who am I? We need to investigate who am I? We need to investigate what we actually are. All these other things, the body and all these points in the body, these are all external phenomena. We can't know the reality. Ego will not subside by attending to... uh, Well, it may subside due to exhaustion in the end. That if we go on attending to other things, sooner or later we become too tired to continue attending to them, and so we subside in sleep. But to bring about the, the permanent subsidence and dissolution of ego, their only means is to attend to our own reality, namely I am. So it may be the path of yoga to attend to all these different points in the body. That may have some sort of efficacy for something, I don't know, but that's isn't. That's all a very roundabout way. Bhagavan's path is the direct path. If, if you want, that is the root problem, is our rising as ego. The only way to put an end to our rising as ego is to cease grasping form and to grasp to whom do all these forms appear? To whom do all these phenomena appear? To me, who am I? We turn our attention within and hold on to our own being. So attending to any point in the body is, is not Bhagavan's path. That is the path of yoga or some other path, but it's not Bhagavan's path. and about that you say you've experienced stillness. So long as there's an I to say I have experienced stillness, that I is ego. Ego is the first thought. So any state where ego has risen is not a state of perfect stillness. The state of perfect stillness is the state in which we do not rise as ego. So long as we're attending to anything other than ourselves, we have risen as ego. So though it may be a relative Stillness. It's not the, the stillness of our own being, the silence of our own being, which is the silence that we have, that is ever-present and that we are uh, returning to by clinging to self-attentiveness. So Bhagavan's path is diametrically opposite to all other paths. All other paths are pravriti they're going outwards, grasping this or that. Meditate on this form or that form this this point or this point or some other point in the body. this is all this is all bahia mukham. it's facing outwards we need what we need is anta mukham, turning our attention back within towards I alone towards our self alone. this is the path of nibriti.
1: Um, the next one is, um, I think that what we call the ego's actions is only the ego's movement of its attention towards things other than itself under the influence of its vishaya Vasanas. This is all ego can do, and only such movement will attract appropriate karma palas. So, in whatever way our body, speech, and mind act is ultimately inconsequential. Because a body's actions do not bear fruit in the deeper sense. What bears fruit is the intention with which the ego uses this, this mind, speech, and body. Could you please comment on what I say here?
0: Uh, it's not exactly so. That is, when, as you say, attending to anything other than ourselves is under the sway of our Vishaya Vasanas. When our attention moves away from ourselves towards something else, that is an activity. That is, a, that is what is called mental activity or thinking. So thinking is nothing but attending to things other than ourselves. Thoughts give rise to speech and actions of a body. So it's all all the actions of mind, speech, and body are, are all originating from. Firstly, from our rising as ego, and secondly, attending to other things. But our rising as ego and attending to other things are simultaneous. We can't, we can't rise as ego without attending to other things. And if instead of attending to other things, if we attend to ourselves, we thereby subside. So it all begins with our rising as ego. When we rise as ego, our our attention goes outwards. When our attention goes outwards, that's the beginning of mental activity. I mean that is mental activity. And mental activity leads to activity of speech and body. So the the fruit of our actions is the fruit of uh, of the actions we
2: do by mind, speech and body. The speech and body are just
0: an extension of the mind. We can say it all exists only. Even this body exists only in the mind. This body is just another thought.
2: So you're right in
0: saying that it all begins with the the movement of our attention away from ourselves towards other things. But but it's not. But that is the end of our gamya. That 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 is. Thoughts lead. To, if we allow the thoughts go to go too far, it leads to words, and words lead to actions. So we, we, that's why we need to we need to check this. We, if we allow our mind to to go outwards, uh, controlling our speech and our actions becomes more difficult. If, but the easiest way to control the actions of body and uh speech is to control it at the starting point when our attention begins to go outwards. If we stop, if we hold on to self-attention and thereby stop our attention going outwards, then we will not um we we, we will not do actions of uh, um of the, then the, the actions of mind, speech, and whatever actions mind, speech, and body will then do is entirely according, in accordance with prarabdha. because we are not doing it, because we're clinging to self-attentiveness. But if we allow our attention to go outwards, then we are the doer of the, the actions of mind, speech, and body. And so we have to experience the resulting fruit, as Bhagavan says in verse 38 of Aludhanaptu. Some people have the wrong, I mean, this question seems to be based upon the wrong assumption some people have, but agamya is only mental activity. No, actual, mental activity leads to activity of, of speech and of body. So we are responsible, so long as we're allowing our attention to go away from ourselves, we are responsible for the actions of our mind, speech and body. If we want to hand over responsibility to Bhagavan, we need to stop allowing our attention to go outwards, we need to cling to self-attentiveness. That is truly handing over uh, mind, speech and body to Bhagavan, to do with as he wills. And he will then, uh, well, they will anyway act according to Prarabdha, and he will make them act according to Prarabdha, whether we surrender them or not.
2: I hope that's a clear answer to that question. Yes, sir. Thank you,
1: sir. Mm. Thank you, thank you. Next question is, um, can the body experience death during deep sleep? And the next part of it is, uh, is it essential for the ego to arise before the body perishes? Where does all the karma go when the body vanishes in sleep? Um,
0: Body doesn't experience anything. Body is jada, as Bhagavan uh, says. Uh, um, So the body is jada. What experiences everything is ego. Ego is aware of itself as I am this body, so it seems to us that i this body am experiencing this, but it's actually it's only ego that is experiencing um regarding uh death we death is just the end, our present life is just a dream, so when this dream comes to an end, that is death um, that if if that if um It could be, but tonight when we go to sleep, we don't wake up in the morning. That is the end of of this dream. So that is death. Uh, So from the onlooker's view, it may seem that the body, he died peacefully in his sleep, it is often said. But actually, that, that, that person's dream came to an end the moment they fell asleep. Because obviously we're not aware of the body. In fact, according to Bhagavan, the body doesn't exist in sleep at all. It's only in the it's only in the view of the mind of ego in waking and dream, but we assume the body continued to exist in sleep. Regarding uh uh, uh and their fruits, um <laughs> All these things exist only in the view of ego. In the absence of ego, there is no karma and no fruit. So karma and their fruit are a problem only in waking and dream when we rise as ego. In sleep, when we don't rise as ego, no problem at all. The only problem with sleep is that we rise from sleep again. If we didn't rise from sleep, then all problems will be solved. But Because sleep is a state of manolaya. Manolaya means that Temporary dissolution of um, of, uh, of of ego and mind. Ego and mind. Ego is the root of the mind. So in fact, they're the same thing. Um, so that's why Bhagavan says in verse thirteen of, of, of Upadesh Undia, dissolution of mind is of two kinds, layer and nasa. That which is dissolved in layer will not ri- will rise again. If its form dies in NASA, it will not rise again. That's slightly paraphrasing, but that's the gist of it. So, um, the, the, the ego or mind is completely absent in sleep, but it hasn't been destroyed, so it comes back again. Only when it comes back, it comes back with all its vasanas, its karmas, and its karmapala and everything. So all this is, it all exists only for ego. So the, the layer is a temporary respite from ego and everything that brings along with it. Uh, Manonasa is a permanent respite from it. So our goal is Manonasa. And how do we bring about Manonasa? ego, we seem to be ego only so long as we're looking outwards. If we turn our attention within to see what we actually are, we will see that what we actually are is pure awareness, and therefore pure awareness is immutable, so we've never risen as ego. So what is called the destruction of mind, Manonasa, is actually the recognition that there's no such thing as mind at all, as Bhagavan says in verse 17 of Rupadesha Undiya. Manati Chava Undipara undipara. If one investigates the form or nature of the mind without uh, forgetting, there's no such thing as mind at all. This is the direct path for everyone. So, what is called Mananasa is just a recognition that no such thing as mind exists at all. We can recognize that only by investigating uh, the reality of this first person. So, when Bhagavan says Manati Nuruve, the form of the mind, what he means is the real nature of the mind, the reality of the mind, what he referred to in the previous verse as uh, manam. The mind knowing its own form of light. So, that the, for the real form of the mind, the essential form of the mind, is that fundamental awareness I am. we investigate that, it'll be clear that there's no such thing as mind at all. And that alone,
2: so this alone is the direct path. I hope that adequately answers that question.
1: Um, The next question is, uh, how to get free from persistent identification with the body? I I try for years, but it is still there, which is very frustrating.
0: Uh, Shall I answer that bit? Yeah. Identification with the body is the very nature of ego. So without getting rid of the one who identifies, we cannot get rid of the identification. Because the very nature of ego is to identify itself with the body. So we can get rid of the identification with the body only by getting rid of ego, the one who identifies with the body. And we can get rid of ego only by being aware of ourselves as we actually are. And we can be aware of ourselves as we actually are only by investigating ourselves. So we need to, if we want to be free of this identification with the body, we need to. Continue practicing self investigation and self surrender. This is the only way. And the reason we haven't yet uh, eradicated ego is that we're not yet willing to surrender ourselves. So, our, if we get frustrated, we are getting frustrated with ourselves. Rather than getting frustrated with ourselves, we should investigate to, to whom is this frustration? and try to go deeper and deeper and deeper within. That's the only way.
2: And what was the second part of the question, Shalini?
1: The second part is uh, how to know that prarabdha karma or destiny so we will not waste precious time and energy in the opposite direction. So I think it means that how can we know prarabdha karma or destiny so that we do not waste precious time and energy in the opposite direction.
0: Attending to anything other than ourself is wasting time and energy in the opposite direction. If we attend to ourself, but, pra- but prarabdha is going to happen anyway, so let it happen. But, but um, so whatever happens is prarabdha. So we need not concern ourselves about what is prarabdha. What we need to concern ourselves about is attending only to ourselves. So long as we're attending to ourselves, we're attending in the right direction. If we're attending to anything other than ourselves, we're attending in the wrong direction. As simple as that.
2: I hope that adequately answered that question. But if the person who asked wants to ask anything more,
1: I think it's all right. Uh, The next one is, uh, yeah, so um, the question is, what does it mean practically to give everything over to Bhagavan?
0: Not rise as ego. Ceasing to rise as ego is surrendering everything to Bhagavan. If we give ourselves to Bhagavan, we are giving everything to Bhagavan. And we can give ourselves to Bhagavan only by clinging firmly to self-attentiveness and thereby not rising as ego. Um,
1: I think, Michael, that um, sort of the word practically, I think looking for some kind of concrete pointers, I'm not sure they can. But, uh, what is more concrete than our own existence? That is, if we're
0: looking for something outside ourselves, we're looking in the wrong direction. The only the solution, the answer to all our questions is to cling to self-attentiveness. That is the ultimate answer to any question, is that all problems will be solved only by attending to ourselves. We cannot solve any problem by attending to anything else. We, if we look for solutions to our problems outside ourselves, We are looking in the wrong direction. We're just perpetuating the problems. So, for the outward-going mind, Bhagavan's path may seem to be something very impractical, but if we understand what Bhagavan's teachings are all about, there's nothing more practical than what Bhagavan is teaching us. Because whatever seemingly practical solution may be given to us is not a real solution at all. The real practical solution is to turn our attention back within, to hold on to what is real, namely,
2: I am. But if the
0: person who asked the question wants to ask anything more, if my answer is not a satisfactory answer, please feel free to ask further. But we need to, if we want to really follow Bhagavan's path, we've got to, we, we, we need that is Bhagavan's teachings are very, very simple, but at the same time, they're very, very deep and subtle. We need to understand, get to clearly grasp what he's pointing at. If we grasp what he's pointing at, then 99.999% of the questions
2: dissolve. The only
0: question that ultimately remains is, who am I? That's what it all comes down to. If we know what we ourselves actually are, we know everything that is to be known, and nothing else remains to be known. If we don't know what we are. Whatever else we may know is useless. It, that is, other knowledge is useful only to the extent to which it prompts us to turn our attention back to ourselves. So even if we've mastered all of Vedanta, if, if we haven't been prompted thereby to turn our attention within, all our knowledge of Vedanta is of no use whatsoever. It's useful, Vedanta is useful only to the extent to which it turns our attention back to ourselves. Because what does Vedanta tell us? You, you are that. So when we are told you are that, okay, we should stop attending to that and attend to ourselves.
2: Thank you, Michael. Can I ask her a further question? Yes, yes, certainly. Um, so in a in a situation of survival and needing, um, like particularly in the west, yes, where it's um expensive to live <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> to India. um what what would you say Bagavan would say about that?
0: That is expensive to live, is all relative if if, you, if you're a billionaire, living anywhere is cheap, because for you the it, 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 money is nothing. If you're poor, living anywhere in the world is is expensive because you, you don't have money to pay for it. So all these are are, are just are all relative things whether. If we, if it's our destiny to live in the West, we'll live in the West. If it's our destiny to live in India, we'll live in India. So all these things are taken care of by destiny. So we shouldn't be concerned about these outward things. If it's our destiny to live in the West and to earn and, and uh, make a living, We will do. If it's our destiny to live in India and learn and make a living, we'll do it. It's all, I mean, all this is determined by prarabdha. Prarabdha takes care of everything. What is to happen will happen. What is not to happen will not happen. So we need to to give up all concern about the outward life of our body and be concerned only to know who am I. Then only we're following Bhagavan's path. So long as our, we are so much concerned about, to the extent to which we're concerned about anything other than ourselves, we are failing to follow Bhagavan's path. Bhagavan's path is a very simple path, but it's a very, very radical path. Bhagavan expects us to give up all cares and concerns about anything other than ourselves. The only thing worth knowing is who am I? Is that a satisfactory answer or not not a satisfactory answer? Thank you. So would you say then in all circumstances, um, it's to surrender to Bhagavan and to trust in Bhagavan? Exactly, exactly. And how to surrender to him? By turning within and holding on to him in our heart, where he's always shining in our own being, I am.
2: Thank you. So so the
0: thinking, so it's the thinking around a a problem, something being a problem. Exactly, exactly. That's why Bhagavan says in the 13th paragraph of Nana, however much burden you place on God, he will bear all of it. When one Parameshwara Shakti, one supreme ruling power, is driving all carriers, everything that's meant to happen is being made to happen as it's meant to happen, when such is the case, why should we, instead of yielding ourselves to it, be constantly thinking it's necessary to do this, it's necessary to do that? If it is necessary to do this or that, leave it to Bhagavan to make you do this or that. That's brilliant. Thank you. So we have to surrender mind, speech and body, everything to him. And we can surrender them to him only by clinging to him in our heart. Thank you. Right. Well, all thanks to Bhagavan, because it's not me who's saying this. I'm I'm simply pointing out what Bhagavan has told us.
1: Thank you. So there are one, two, three, four questions that two have just come in. Um, So the question is: uh, From where does intuition arise? Is it from the ego, or is it sparks of light from the self penetrating, penetrating, penetrating through the ego?
0: Um, Intuition. One thing to remember about intuitions. Intuitions are not always correct. An intuition is we have a hunch, but sometimes something just becomes clear to us, and we think, "Ah, oh, this is it." We may be wrong sometimes. Sometimes, what we think, "Oh, I got it," maybe the wrong thing we've got. But it's all um, like great scientific discoveries and things. Ultimately, it comes from the, within the heart of the scientist. It's a scientist who gets the idea of a eureka moment. So where this comes from, you can say in a sense, yes, it all ultimately comes from the ultimate source of everything is our own real nature, the pure awareness I am. Because everything comes from ego, and ego comes from that um, from that, uh pure awareness, I am. So the ultimate source of everything has to be such it. The immediate source of everything is ego. So you you can say it comes through ego. So the intuitions come through ego. um, And uh, because they come through ego, they may be right, they may be wrong. Some intuitions turn out to be right, some intuitions turn out to be wrong. So, some people who have a very superficial understanding, they talk about self-knowledge as being intuitive knowledge. It's not intuitive knowledge. That is, self-knowledge means the pure awareness I am. When we turn within and lose ourselves completely in that infinite light of pure awareness, that is pure knowledge. That cannot be called intuition. That is way beyond intuition. Intuition is something that occurs within the mind, and sometimes
2: right, sometimes wrong.
0: But the the pure awareness I am can never be wrong, because that's one certainty. So when we lose ourselves in that, there's no possibility of error. So long as we're still in the realm of intuition, there's every possibility of error. But intuition is all in the mind.
1: So um, there's a question, uh, a couple of questions. Um, this is in The Path of Sri Ramana, part one. It says that upon total surrender, and intense heat that was until then in Bhagwan's body, completely subsided. I also read something similar about Ramakrishna. Could you explain what this heat was? Is it a form of purification?
0: Um, all these are relevant to the life of the person we take Bhagawan to be. Um, that is, Bhagawan told certain things that happened in his life um but he the bhagavan who is saying that is the person whom bhagavan seems to us to be so uh, it's true from the outward looking perspective of ego yes bhagavan um bhagavan traveled from madurai and came to tiruvannamalai and when he came and he uh, entered the temple and embraced the linga the burning uh, but was in his body subsided um that much we know but uh that is not the real experience of bhagavan the real experience of bhagavan is a pure awareness i am everything else is is relative to the, the, the seeming life of the body but that is not what bhagavan actually is so yes bhagavan did say that he did say that that burning that was there uh, subsided when he embraced the Linga, but um, we can't really understand with our mind, as Bhagavan says in verse um, in um, in
2: in verse uh, thirty one of he, um
0: He, he, what, what he says in this verse for those who are happiness composed of that, Tamayananda which rose destroying themselves, what one thing exists for doing they do not know anything other than themselves, who can, can say, see their state as like this, so we cannot under, adequately understand Bhagavan's state, so if we want to understand Bhagavan's state Bhagavan's state is our own real state. So, only by knowing our own real state, in other words, knowing what we actually are, we can know Bhagavan. So, trying to understand uh, Bhagavan without knowing ourselves is futile. So, uh, really, we can't adequately answer questions of this type. It, all we can say is, yes, Bhagavan said this, but we we shouldn't try to read interpretations into it or anything, because it's just our mind is reading an interpretation into it. So we just accept it. Yes, Bhagavan said like this. Okay, that's fine. But what Bhagavan told us we should do is to investigate who am I. So rather than concerning ourselves about trying to understand these phenomena, we should try to Know what we ourselves actually are. Who is it? Who am I? Who wants to understand all these things?
2: That alone is useful, because
0: however we try to interpret Bhagavan's life, our interpretation is sure to be wrong, because we, we cannot understand his state, because in his view there's nothing other than himself. Nothing other than himself means there's no body, no heat, nothing, there's just, I am. It's only in our view, because we see him as a person, but he seems to undergo all
2: these experiences.
1: The next question is: uh, When going deeper and deeper within, while while on the pursuit of self, are we bypassing the various other bodies?
0: Yeah, well, the bodies are all external, but, but, but that means that. Uh, when you say the, the other bodies, I assume you mean the the stula-sarira, sukshma-sarira, karana-sarira, that is the gross body, the subtle body, and the causal body. All these bodies are extraneous, they're outside ourself. When we turn our attention within, we are turning away from these three bodies, going back within. So, yeah, in a sense, you can say we're going beyond, but it, it's in fact we are withdrawing ourself. From a false identification with these other bodies and identifying ourselves. I mean, well, not even identifying ourselves. We are clinging firmly to what we to our real identity, which is I am alone.
2: So we need not concern
0: ourselves about these five sheaves or three bodies or anything. It's just the reason we are talking to- this the, the, the body is analyzed as consisting of five sheaves or three bodies. This is all for understanding the nature of what we are identified with. But what so identifying ourselves with any of these uh five sheaves or three bodies is, is a false identification. So it's only to enable us to understand that these are not what we actually are. But we, these are analysed. Once we understand that these are not what we actually are, then what are we? We are just the fundamental awareness, I am. That is what we need to investigate. So we leave behind all these things and try to hold on to our
2: own being, I am.
1: The next question is, uh, how do we develop more interest to turn our mind inwards? Are there any pointers to practice in our daily life?
0: That is what Bhagavan's teachings are all about. Studying Bhagavan's teachings more and more should kindle in us more and more interest to know what we actually are. Bhagavan's, that is the sole aim of all of Bhagavan's teachings, is to turn our attention back within. So to 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 get to if we want to have more and more interest to look within, constantly remembering Bhagavan's teachings and trying to turn within, it's, I mean, Bhagavan's teachings are constantly reminding us of the need to turn within. And the more we turn within, the more liking we will have to turn within, the more interest we will have in turning within. So, uh, it always comes back to and mananidhityasana. We need to attentively uh, study Bhagavan's teachings, pay close attention to what he's saying. We need to think about it deeply, we need to make sense of it, and we need to put it into
2: practice.
0: The more we put it into practice, the more we'll get from our srabana, the more we'll, the more meaning we'll see, Meaning and implication we'll see in Bhagavan's words. But and the deeper our manana will be, and the deeper our sravana manana is the deeper, we'll in, uh, in the deeper we go in the The deeper we go in the the deeper they will become. So these are all that is the sravana and manana are a great support to us in our nidityasana. They're constantly encouraging us and uh, giving us more and more clarity to go within. But the most Im- the Sravana manana without nidityasana, is, is uh, there's no use the, the whole point of uh, Sravana manana is to point us to towards the nidityasana, but turning
2: our attention within
0: There are so many things in this world which will distract us, the news and this interest, that interest. To the extent to which we take interest in other things, we will not have interest in knowing ourselves. That is why constantly reading and thinking about Bhagavan's teachings will be keeping that interest alive. And we, we, we need to act on that interest by trying more and more to turn within. And slowly, slowly, that love to turn within will grow stronger and stronger as a result of our practice. But the practice is all important.
2: Bhagavan's teachings are a great support, but they, not, they cannot be a substitute for the practice. There is support, precisely because they're constantly encouraging us to turn back within. I hope that adequately answered that question.
1: Um, this is yes, the last question. You. This is the last question, Michael. Mm. Um, Yeah, the question is, uh, isn't love the expression of this one consciousness? Therefore, we should let our light shine.
0: Love is the very nature of consciousness. That is, the pure awareness is pure love. Let our light shine means the light is always shining in our heart as I am. But we are generally overlooking the light. We are... We are We are attending to that which is illumined by this light. So what we need to do is cease attending to what is illumined by the light, turning our attention back towards the light itself. The light means the light of pure awareness, I am.